0: Well, last week we talked about sin, and whether you were here last week or not, let me just tell you, it was dark. And we talked about what the Bible has to say about who we are apart from God's gracious intervention, and and really it's quite depressing, and then it sets a great backdrop, though, for us to see how glorious salvation is. So I thought it would be fitting for us to follow that study last week with a study this morning that talks about the greatness of God's grace and salvation. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'll invite you to turn to Luke 23. If you're new to the Bible, uh, we're glad you're here. Hopefully you raised your hand and we gave you a Bible, and you can find a table of contents in the front of that Bible, and you can find Luke, Luke chapter 23. It's the Gospel according to Luke, the good news of Jesus Christ according to Luke. And what we're going to do in Luke 23 is we're going to be able to, to study it and look at it in some detail, and we're going to learn about God's great salvation just about how rich and how profound and how wonderful God's great salvation is. But we're going to do so from a very non-traditional source. We're not going to learn from Peter. We're not going to learn from James. We're not going to learn from John. We're not going to learn from Paul. We're going to learn about God's great salvation from someone who's not even named here. This non-traditional source who in many ways is my hero A hero of the faith, if you will. He didn't make the list in the book of Hebrews, but he's one of my favorites. He's a criminal being executed, and he teaches us a lot about salvation and how wonderful and how great it is. He's otherwise known as the thief on the cross. That's how we typically know of him. And as we look at his life, or shall we say his death, we're going to learn some vital lessons about salvation. And I will list four vital lessons about salvation that we learned from the thief on the cross. I'm sure there are more vital lessons, but I have four for you today. Lest we miss lunch, we'll stop at four. And if you're jotting them down, they will be as follows Number one, anyone can be saved. First lesson we'll learn from the thief on the cross that will apply to our lives and apply to the lives of the people we interact with. Anyone can be saved. Now, I will qualify that, lest you think I'm a universalist, but we'll do that later. Number two, a second vital lesson regarding salvation. We're going to learn from a thief, a hardened criminal. Number two, this is the only long one. Anyone saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anyone who is saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The thief on the cross is a good example of that for us. And as you're still jotting, just so you know where I'm coming from, when I say saved, maybe that's new for you. Maybe you haven't really thought about what that is. When I say saved, I mean rescued, I mean delivered. Uh, We say it as Christians a lot because it's a term the Bible uses to describe us. Us. Uh, uh, and and we'll see it in a passage in Titus later, the Bible says God saved us. That is, He rescued us. And and we would know from the Bible He saves us from our sin, He saves us from the power of sin in our life that, that holds us in bondage so we can't stop sinning. But ultimately, we as Christians mean, and what I mean ultimately, when we say saved, we mean saved from not what, but saved from whom. Ultimately, we mean saved from God because God is a just God and he's a righteous God and he's promised that he will justly, fairly, rightly judge sinners. And so when we're talking about being saved, we're talking about being saved from what is due, what we've earned. And the Bible would say that that would be condemnation from God. So number 1, number 2, now number 3, this this one is the third lesson we'll learn. Everyone won't be saved. Everyone won't be saved. And number four, learning from a thief, everyone who is saved will bear fruit. Everyone who is saved, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, will bear fruit. That is, they'll show spiritual life. Something will happen in their lives. Well, let's go ahead and read the entire text of Luke 23, verses 33 down to verse 43. So if you have a Bible, you can pick that up, and and let's go ahead and and read through through the narrative. It says in verse 33, "...when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up His garments among themselves." And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus... Remember me when you come in or into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now at first glance, you may find none of those lessons. You may find some of those lessons. But as we look at this passage, and even as we compare it to Matthew's account of the same event, we put them together, we'll see all of those lessons. With the goal being that we understand how great salvation is. And those of us who have been saved rightfully respond to God for His great blessing and salvation and we praise Him the way He should be praised, which is mightily and fervently. And those of you who are not saved, you've never trusted in Christ and in Christ alone, you'll see By way of example, what it looks like in someone's life, a real person. And you'll see just how great God's grace is. And I suppose I should add a a, a final outcome that I hope happens here. I hope those of you who are Christians look at other people who are not Christians appropriately in light of this. So we're going to learn about how great salvation is if we are saved. We're going to learn about how great it is if we're not saved, and we're going to learn about how great it is if we're looking at other people who are not saved. That includes everyone, and it certainly is applicable and helpful to us. It's vital for us to see this example. I should say something else about my format, my methodology, and how I will will present this to you. I've been speaking nonstop since about 8.30, so I have to kind of check myself now and then. I was trying to read Scripture earlier, and I thought, I can't even think straight. What is my problem? And... Anyway, I guess I need more, not more caffeine, (laughs) maybe more rest the day before or something like that. But anyway, just to let you know, I I think many times you can try to prove and read all kinds of things into a narrative. This is a narrative. And and, and so just so we make sure this is not all in our minds and not really in the passage, because that happens sometimes. At different times I will cite other passages that are not narratives that are saying the exact same thing. So we can see that this actually lines up exactly with what Scripture would say elsewhere as we read and get our theology, if you will, even from other books of the Bible and we see that it fits perfectly what we're seeing here. Number one, first vital lesson that I hope we we see is a great thing, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved, and I'm not saying that, that, that somehow that, that God chooses everyone. The Bible doesn't teach that. My point is, in saying that, is even the most vile offender, as the song says, it doesn't matter how bad they may be as far as their actions are concerned, they can be the worst person you could possibly think of in your mind. they are not beyond the boundary of God's ability to save them. That's all I'm trying to say. That's all I'm trying to say by this. And we see this man as a, as a criminal. Look at verse 39 again with me if you would. Where it says, one of the criminals. That's how he's described. And, and sometimes criminals, in fact most of the time I've, when I have talked to criminals, they don't, want, they, they don't want to admit that it's their fault. They do the blame game like Adam and Eve mastered so long ago. But, but do notice in verse 41. And we, speaking of himself uh, and the other criminal, and we indeed, most certainly, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Not only have we been accused of being bad people, he's saying we are bad people. Uh, guilty as charged. He's telling the other guy to be quiet, because the other guy is somehow going against Jesus, and the guy is saying, don't you have a clue? You're here justly on the cross, and I'm here justly on the cross. So these are bad people. And we need to know and we need to be reminded that God saves bad people. The question is, what is He guilty of? We call Him the thief on the cross? Well, from what we know from from, from Roman culture, uh, a petty theft wouldn't get you on a Roman cross. You might lose your right hand... But but, but typically speaking, you're not going to find yourself on a Roman uh, cross of execution for taking something in the marketplace. You're going to find yourself on a Roman cross typically, not saying there aren't exceptions, typically because of some sort of high-handed crime. You're going to find yourself on a Roman cross because of, of some sort of plot of insurrection, trying to overthrow the government, undermine the government, or if you're a murderer. And so let's stop thinking somehow all he is is a mere thief. There would have been more involved there. There's something heinous in this man's life. We might call him a hardened criminal. And yet, did you notice in verse 43? Today you shall be with me in paradise. It is as the song says. Even the most vile offender who truly believes. That's a good song because it certainly fits this particular example. Absolutely, it does. Let me ask you is there something in the back of your mind, perhaps it's something you've shared with others or you've never shared with other people, is there something in your mind, maybe at the front of your mind, that you have done that you think somehow puts you beyond the bounds of God's rescue efforts? That's a reality for some people. I'm here to tell you that if that's the case, you haven't yet, by the grace of God, tasted the goodness of the gospel. You don't get it yet. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just trying to let you know the facts. You don't quite understand just how great and how grand the cross is. You don't don't yet understand how mighty and how wonderful what Jesus Christ did as He died uh, as as a substitute for sinners. You you don't get it because His death is sufficient. That's why this vile man can hear from Jesus, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Let's put that question in another way. Are there people that you think of maybe people in your family, maybe people you work with, maybe some of your enemies, closest friends, that when you think of them, you think outside the bounds of the reach of God because of something they've done. Again, that reveals lack of understanding. It reveals that you don't quite get the gospel. Because if you really got the gospel, you would see that the way to be within the reach of God is not by somehow some sort of moral achievement, somehow not through being a, a relatively good person. This guy's a great example. It's the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly, that is before God saved me like this, a blasphemer. A blasphemer, a blasphemer, if that's how you want to say it. That's someone who speaks lies in the context there. Someone who speaks lies about God, the one true God. And to make it all the more heinous for Paul, he claimed to represent the one true God, and he spoke lies, and now he's admitting it, against the one true God. It's heinous. It's high-handed spiritual crime. I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And he's busy giving his testimony about it. God save me. Not altogether different like the thief on the cross. Anyone can be saved if I can be saved. That's Paul's argument, by the way, there. He's arguing from, from, from the greater to the lesser. We could do the same thing with the thief on the cross. I would just encourage you to remember this in your life. I would encourage you to remember this in the lives of the people you talk to and you deal with and you interact with. I've shared this be- story before and I'll just keep telling the story because it boasts of God's grace. But I remember on, on one occasion we had a baptism service and uh, some folks, I, we always invite friends and, and someone was being baptized uh, who knew someone I went to high school with. And so that person uh, was here that night and, and we got to talking and, uh, and then uh, we ended up having lunch together uh, at a different time. And, and he said, I just have to tell you that you're the guy. I'm like, what do you mean? When I was growing up and I was a Christian, and I was going to church, and my Sunday school teacher encouraged us to pray for someone that we thought was unsavable. You're the guy. Anybody can be saved. I love it that I can stand before you as a testimony of God's grace, and somebody thought I was unsavable. And you know what? I was unsavable. Everybody's unsavable apart from the grace of God. We just don't understand how great God's grace is and how powerful God's grace is. It's truly amazing, this thing we call grace. Unbelievers tend to not like this. Confused believers don't understand it, but unbelievers don't like it. And you you get a flavor of this. Anytime you hear of someone who, let's say, is on death row and they're getting ready to get the electric chair or lethal injection or whatever it's going to be, and somehow, and whether it's true or not, that's not for our discussion now, but somehow they make a profession of faith. They make a Christian profession. And the unbelieving world watches and, and they mock and they sneer and... You know, how is it you can live your life and do all those horrible things and then at the end you can somehow say, I believe in Jesus and repent and, and be forgiven of God. You know what they're saying? They don't realize it, but what, what they're saying is somehow salvation is for good people. Salvation is not for good people. Salvation is for bad people. Everyone's bad, as we saw last time in light of Ephesians two one two 2, and 3. Everyone is bad. The problem is we don't just know that we're all bad. Romans chapter 3 says, No one does good, no, not one. That doesn't mean there's not relative goodness in the world. But when it comes to pleasing God, no one does good, no, not one. No one seeks God. If it's not clear enough in Romans 3, you can look at it in the Old Testament in Psalm 14. The question isn't, how could God accept Jeffrey Dahmer? I'm not here to justify the legitimacy of his profession or detract it. How could God God forgive someone who who was a cannibal and a pervert? The question is not, how could God save a person like that? The question is, how could God save anybody? Because we all have committed spiritual treason against God and we all deserve to go to hell, whether it be Jeffrey Dahmer or get up in the morning and look in the mirror. That's the bigger question. We far overestimated our goodness. And we far underestimated the goodness and the power and the sufficiency of the cross. That's simply a matter of what ends up happening. The way this can happen, the way God can forgive, whether it be a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Pat Abendroth, is by having a sufficient and powerful and awesome and mighty redemptive work that is substitutionary, that he's dying for me. That's how. Christ lived a perfect life that Pat didn't live. Christ died a perfect death, satisfying the wrath of God that Pat couldn't ever satisfy. That's how. This is just 101. Christianity 101. Anyone can be saved. Second vital lesson about salvation is that, number two, anyone saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If we looked at this last week in relationship to our connection to history uh, and, and as evangelicals, as a church... And we looked at it in some detail, so I won't look at it in a lot of detail as far as the doctrine is concerned. But we'll see it here with this man. How do we know he was saved by, by, by grace alone? Well, how many times did he go to communion? Did he get immersed, sprinkled, or poured? Um, how much money did he give? You just go down the list. He didn't do any of those things. He couldn't have done any of those things. It had to be grace. Grace is God's unearned favor. He gave him a gift, salvation, because he couldn't do anything to pay God. He couldn't do anything religious or otherwise. It was impossible. The unmerited favor of God is the only way anyone could ever be saved. And this guy's a great example. It's a great example of this. Oh, and it's not just unmerited favor because it wasn't like the thief on the cross was morally neutral. He was a bad person and God gave him a gift. This is great to see. No one could ever be saved by any amount of works they do. It's all of grace. And this guy's a great example of it. You can just jot down Titus chapter 3 verse 5. I alluded to it earlier and now I'll read it. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. I'm not just using a narrative somewhere to prove my point that isn't justified elsewhere. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Going to church. Getting confirmed. Blah, 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 all those things that may or may not be good. But according to His mercy, which is another uh, partner word for grace, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, that's how He does it. The thief is a great example that he was saved by the, by the unmerited favor of God. Not only was it by grace alone, it was through faith alone. You say, how do you find that in there? Well, again, what did He do? when When you talk about faith, it's how do you take what Christ did and appropriate it and make it personal. Yes, Jesus died a great death. Yes, it was by grace that He did it. Yes, it was out of love for sinners like us. And it was magnificent and it was awesome and it was sufficient and all those things. But the Bible makes it clear that somehow you have to appropriate it. You have to make it personal in your life. Well... I believe He did it not through baptism, not through confirmation, not through somehow um, hoping that someone else would uh, accomplish enough merit for Him apart from Christ. Look what it says there in verse 42. Jesus, here's what He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If that's not... Faith in Christ, I don't know what is. He didn't give him his resume of all the things he's done. He didn't try to bribe Jesus. If you do this, I will. Or since I have, will you? What does he do? Jesus? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's trusting in Christ. He's trusting that Christ has the power to do this and that he will. This is a great example. He had no other means. There he is, naked on a cross. He has nothing to give. He's doing what it says in Romans ten. He's calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's doing. He understands Acts four twelve before Acts four twelve was ever even written or said. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. I mean, he's calling on the Lord. It's only by grace. It's only through faith. True or false? The only way to ever be saved from the wrath of God and appropriate what God has done is through faith. The answer is true. It's absolutely true. It's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4 is the great passage that talks about this, that shows us that the two are together. The people in the the Old Testament, please rid it from your mind forevermore. People in the Old Testament weren't saved by works. What what you're doing, as soon as you go down that way of thinking, you're thinking somehow they were good enough to do enough good works that God would accept them. They were totally depraved then too. Read Jeremiah 17.9. How did they get to heaven? Read Romans 4. Abraham believed God, faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't righteous. God credits him with his own righteousness, God's righteousness. And how did it happen? It's through faith. It's through faith. thief on the cross is just an example of the very thing Abraham is an example of in Romans 4. Romans 4.3, Romans 4.4, Romans 4.5. Remember, guys, gals, kids, just as last time we were talking about how no religion in the world believes that human beings are totally sinful and can do nothing to save themselves. No religion in the world, apart from biblical Christianity, believes that. Complementing that, no religion in the world, apart from biblical Christianity, says the only way to appropriate what God has done is through faith and through faith alone. My question for you is why would that be? Why would it be that no religion other than Christianity says there's nothing you can do to save yourself and the only thing you can do, which is also by the grace of God, is trust in the work of another? Why would that be? I'll tell you why. Because naturally, we don't like that. Naturally, I don't like that. Because what do I have to do? I have to say, uh, Hi, my name is Pat and I have a problem. Oh, no. Hi, my name is Pat and I am the problem. Hi, my name is Pat and I not only have a problem, I am a problem and there's nothing I can do to help myself. Sheesh. I need lots of counseling after that. (laughs) This is horrible. There are no attaboys. There's no Pat on the back. There's no bootstrap pulling up. It's to acknowledge that you are an absolute failure before God. And and that your only hope is not partnership with God. Your only hope is everything that He did. And you, in order to receive that, even have to see your own spiritual bankruptcy and acknowledge that it's all of Him. No one in their right mind, if they're a sinner, would ever say, that's a good idea. Now, thanks be to God, by the grace of God, he, he, he busts into our world and takes the shackles off our minds and off of our hearts, and we say, this is good, this is right, I now agree with God that I'm a sinner. Knowing that those who say that they're not sinners say God is a liar, First John would say. It sets Christianity apart from every other religion. It's only by Him, it's all through what He has done. It's only through faith. And, and, and someone shared this with me one time. I don't remember who it was or I'd give them credit. They talked about the teeter-totter in understanding the Bible and understanding worldview, understanding theology. The teeter-totter effect, and I'll see if I get it right, is something like this. You put God on one side and you put sinners on the other side and the more you elevate sinners and their ability, the more you lower the greatness and the glory and the grace of God. But if you put sinners in their place, Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins, all the way at the bottom, the natural, supernatural, maybe we should say, outcome is you put God at the top in His place and you exalt Him. So to the degree that we meddle with this, we say, well, okay, we're totally sinful, there's nothing we can do, it's all of God's grace. That puts God where He should be, exalting Him. Well, you know, we're not totally bad, we're kind of good, and so, you know, we just kind of meet God in the middle... You're robbing glory from God, and then we sometimes just do this. It's only through faith. If it's all what Christ has done, and it's only by God's grace, there's only one conclusion, and that is the Romans 4 conclusion. That is the thief on the cross conclusion Jesus! To call upon his name, because you couldn't do it. J. Gresham Machin, who is one of my favorite writers of yesteryear, back when Princeton had a soul, he was there. He said this, the center of the Bible and the center of Christianity is found in the grace of God. But get this, and the necessary corollary or partner of the grace of God is salvation through faith alone. It's exactly what I was just trying to say, but I can't quite say it with the eloquence. If it's all of grace... The necessary corollary is it's only through faith. It's based upon what He's done. The thief is a great example of showing us this very thing. Not only is it by grace alone, through faith alone, it's in Christ alone. Notice, He doesn't call upon one of the, one of the many Roman demigods. He, he's not calling upon His ancestors to somehow get Him to Elysium. That's not the case at all. There's only one, Luke 23, 42. And He was saying, Jesus! Remember me when you come into your kingdom again. It's the Acts 4.12 thing before it even started. He knows. I say to you, let the thief be your example. Let the thief be your example when you look at your own life. Let the thief be your example when you look at the lives of others that you somehow think are so bad they're beyond the reach. Well, then you don't understand the grace of God. You don't understand that it's the perfect work of Christ. You don't understand that it's appropriated only through faith. It should cause us to look at people differently, it should cause us to look in the mirror differently. But if we're really honest, we see ourselves as above him. It simply isn't the case. He's the beggar thief. A third vital lesson about salvation that is motivating and encouraging and helpful and fosters praise for those who are saved. Number three, everyone won't be saved. Take a look at verse 43 with me again, if you would. Jesus is the one speaking, and it says that Jesus said to him, I inserted in my notes, not both. He said to him, there are two thieves, right? He said to him, one of them, truly I say to you, today, you, not Texas style, y'all, You shall be with me in paradise. And by what he doesn't say, he says a lot. You say, but wait a minute, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, so far you're doing a good job acting like a cultist that quotes part of the Bible. The verse says, That whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Don't forget that part. One man here is showing belief. One man isn't. Don't forget John 3.18. By the way, would somebody start holding that up at the football game? If you're going to you know, get vanity plates on your car, replace John 3.16 with John 3.18. People are going to think you're a dumb Christian. Don't you know it's 3.16? But you know what? You, you, you might get somebody thinking. And by the way, John 3.18 has good news and bad news. So it gives us both. He who believes in Him is not judged. That's, that's good news. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, God's one means of salvation. You know, the horrifying thing about the story is they were both close to Jesus, right? Proximity. They were right there. They were closer to Jesus than you will ever be. They were right there with Him. I don't know the exact proximity, but uh, close enough where they can talk to each other. And there they are. In fact, one on the right one on the left. So they can talk over Jesus. They're close. And the frightening thing is, they're within moments, within hours, however long. They both stepped into eternity. And one would step into eternal condemnation. And the other would step into... To use the biblical word, paradise, that very day. So let's make a conclusion here. And let's, uh, let's do some deducing. Just because you're close to Jesus doesn't mean anything. Now let's stretch it out a little bit more. In one sense, all of us right now, right here, are close to Jesus. His word is being proclaimed. You're around other Christians who name his name. You're seeing the love of Christ. All these things put us close, at least. The fact of the matter is one paradise, one separation from him. Proximity doesn't prove anything. Not everyone will be saved. That's sobering. A fourth and final vital lesson about salvation. Oh, and by the way, before we get to that, you know, that, that could be a downer, I know. I hope it's a downer for you if need be. The most loving thing I could do is talk about that. But it's not just a downer because here I am as a Christian, and if you're a Christian and you say, you know what? <laughs> not everybody's going to heaven. And I am? Oh, and it's not by what I did? God, thank you. Because I deserve to go. This this reality of not everybody going to heaven shouldn't foster in us some sort of bitterness and negativity against God questioning His justice. This business of not everybody going to heaven, if you are going there by the grace of God, should foster in you not some sort of patting on the back because you're smarter. No, you know you're not smarter. You're not better. God, I don't even know why. Again, it's no wonder that Paul is just bursting forth with praise in Ephesians 1 because it, doesn't even, it has nothing to do with anything he did. Two ways to look at it. And then a fourth and final vital lesson from the thief on the cross. And that is everyone who is saved, and we've seen already, it's only by grace, it's only through faith, it's in Christ. Everyone who is saved will bear spiritual fruit. I imagine there are two kinds of people listening to me this morning. After you hear me say, everyone who is saved will bear spiritual fruit, some of you are saying, I don't see that in that passage, and I don't think it's biblical anyway. And others of you are saying, I think it's biblical, but I don't see it in that passage. Well, I think you're going to see it in this passage when you compare it with Matthew's account. And you do a little bit of detective work and you you sharpen your magnifying glass a little bit. The thief on the cross is a great example of someone who could give nothing to God, did nothing other than sin, is promised eternity in paradise with Christ, and even in the short amount of time all he was there, showed new life. It's a great example. If you would turn to Matthew twenty-seven and also Luke twenty-three, and so if you just keep yourself in both places, let let's let's do a little of compar- a little comparative study. If you've never read through the Bible with a harmony of the Gospels, I would encourage you to do that. It's it's quite enlightening. It's quite helpful. Uh, My favorite one, because he was one of my professors, ends up being the one by Thomas and Gundry. Uh, It's called The Harmony of the Gospels. You can get it in New American Standard. You can get it in NIV. Um, I think that's all because it was published some time ago. Pick that up. It's just really helpful to read through and to see how it all gels together and fits together. They're, they're looking at things sometimes from different angles, from, from a different perspective, whether it be one from a Jewish perspective like Matthew, Mark more of a Gentile perspective. But it's nice to kind of fill in all the details. Look at verse 44 of Matthew 27. It says there, the robbers, uh, plural, The robbers who had been crucified with Him were also insulting Him with the same words. Both of those guys insulting Him with the same words. You say, the same words as what? Well, let's go ahead and go back up to verse 39. Here's what's being tied together there. They're both engaging in these same things. In verse 39, "...and those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads." And they were saying, notice at the end there, "...save yourself!" In verse 40, "...if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross." It's total mocking. And then they just go on and on uh, with the chief priests. They're joining in with that. Mocking the scribes, the elders... He saved others. He cannot save himself in verse 42. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They're completely mocking him. Verse 43 he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And then go back to verse 44, which we read already. The robbers, the criminals would be better, but it's plural who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Don't you love it? Not that this is good that this happened to Jesus, but don't you love getting a little bit of insight from a a different camera angle? Both men surrounding Jesus were equally vile in their antagonism against Jesus, joining the crowds, saying the same things. They were opposed to Him. They weren't quote-unquote reformed, good, bad people. They were both equally bad, doing bad things. And then He cries out and calls upon the Lord to save him. And then all of a sudden, His life changes. His life radically changes. He doesn't have to wait, you know, perhaps years later, his life will get jump-started and he'll have a second work of grace or something like that that's not even in the Bible. Getting back to Luke's account, in light of Matthew's account, getting back to Luke's account, and I'll just do this quickly, in verse 41, he acknowledged his sin. In verse 40, he confronted the other criminal. That's a life change. In verses 40 and 41, perhaps, I don't want to push it too much, he might even be showing evangelistic zeal. And what he's saying to the other guy. In verse 42, he acknowledges the sovereign kingship, the sovereign lordship of Jesus, by doing what? Right there in verse 42, your kingdom. He's not seeing Jesus as a second-rate son of a carpenter. He's seeing Him as the king. When you go into your kingdom, he's acknowledging Christ as the king. How about all of this that he's doing, acknowledging the the supremacy of Christ, and he's doing it all in front of these people who've been mocking him. And just moments earlier, he was mocking them, mocking him as well. And then all of a sudden, the sovereign grace of God gets a hold of that guy. Changes what he says. Changes his perspective. Even gives him some boldness in front of all the people who would make fun of him. To borrow what will be said later in Romans 1.16, he's not ashamed of the gospel. All of that right there while he's on the cross? Well, read it again, read it again, read it again. Assumedly, this guy didn't see any miracles. He didn't see any signs. and Signs of regeneration. New birth. After similar comments, J.C. Ryle, and by the way, if you've read J.C. Ryle's book, I would commend it to you. It's a bunch of, bunch of different articles. Uh, Ryle was, uh, oh, over hundred years ago, Anglican bishop. His, his writings are just so fresh and, and helpful. He wrote a book called Holiness, and it doesn't really have anything that holds it together much. It's miscellaneous articles. And he wrote an article, I believe it's called Christ's Greatest Trophy. It's all about this guy. Listen to what he says regarding this matter let no man therefore think because the penitent thief was saved that men can be saved without leaving any evidence of the spirit's work i'll read it again let no man think therefore think because the penitent thief was saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone right that men can be saved without leaving any evidence of the spirit's work let such a one consider well what evidence is this man left behind and take care meaning take care of himself. What's happening just in a little short amount of time is he's already doing what Ephesians 2.10 says. He's already walking in the good works that God had prepared beforehand. Get it straight in your mind. He is not now doing all these things somehow so Jesus will accept him. Jesus has accepted him. Today you will be with me in paradise all grace through faith in Christ. But when the Spirit of God changes your heart it's called regeneration. you don't stay spiritually dead, you have spiritual life, that's regeneration and you see evidences of it right here. I should turn to one more passage if you would with me and that's Titus chapter 2 verse 14. Again, because I'm fearful that somehow... And I I like this because you're you're trying to be discerning, no doubt. But I fear that somehow you'll think that, well, that's interesting. You seem to be reading a lot into there. And I'm, I'm sure the rest of the Bible, you know, the epistles don't teach this. Because I know lots of people who are for sure Christians and their life never shows it. Well, just be careful with what your authority is you know lots of people who are for sure Christians and their life never shows it. Who's the authority in that statement? You are. So let's not read it into Matthew or Luke, but let's observe Matthew and Luke, even in light of other passages. How about Titus chapter 2, verse 14? Speaking of Jesus based upon the verses beforehand, Jesus Christ is who He's referring to. And then get this. Who gave Himself for us... Okay, there's this sacrificial death that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession and we might if we stop there conclude oh yes that's all positional truth because christ died for us he redeemed us and he purified us but it's all positional it has nothing to do with my life and we would be wrong to conclude that those things are all true but you have to keep reading in verse 14 zealous for good deeds Connect the dots, men and women. Connect the dots. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Okay, you could argue it's all positional, but not the end. Sell us for good deeds. Tied even to his redeeming work is built in something that would happen in the lives of those people that would cause them to be hungry, to be greedy, to use a negative word, to be zealous for doing the right thing. Not so that they would gain redemption, but because they have redemption. And the thief on the cross is a great example of what's fleshed out there in Titus 2.14. You don't need to go there, but First John 3.10 says, But the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Okay, that's a good verse to know. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. How do we know? Because everyone who fills out a little card, because everyone who goes forward, because every <coughs> Listen carefully. By this, the children of God and the children of the, of the devil are obvious. I mean, in one sense, you, you'd like to say, Man, if there was a verse in the Bible that said that, I'd want to know what it said. It's in the Bible. Is there an obvious way to know? 1 John 3.10 By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Yeah, but that's in the Old Testament. What? What makes it obvious? What makes it obvious is... Profession, that's really important. But read Matthew 7, profession. There are lots of professing Christians who are going to be surprised one day because Jesus is going to reject them into a Christless eternity. Profession doesn't give assurance. The perfect work of Christ on Calvary, the book of Hebrews would have us believe, gives assurance. And if that truly is something that's uh, been appropriated by you, by God's grace, then transformation of life, new life, shows and makes it obvious, 1 John 3. Thief is a great example of this. So I hope you, you felt bad last week because of sin. And I hope today you're saying that God is great. He even saves really bad people. And now you know, like me. And the thief is a great example. And not only does he save us, he doesn't just give us uh, fire insurance to stay out of hell. When he saves us, he actually changes our lives so that we live for his glory and for his honor and not just for ourselves. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we're even reminded today that if we do any good works that are, that are truly good, even as believers, it's ultimately because of you. They're, they're not meritorious, they don't earn your favor. And yet they do come. They, they come into our lives, and they show that we belong to you, and, and they show that, that you've given us a new heart, that we're not spiritually dead anymore. And we want to praise you for that, even as we sing the song, exalting your great grace and exalting your great Son. Because you indeed are worthy of our praise. Amen.